Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to John's Gospel in chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, maybe you're visiting or new to the church, there are some Bibles around in some of the pews, or I'll put a lot of the scriptures up on the screen so you can follow along with us there. The message will be pretty simple today. Try to keep it pretty simple. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Jesus told his followers later in the book of John in chapter 12. He said, unless a seed fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Unless a seed fall into the ground and die. So Jesus Christ, his life is seed. He fell into the ground having died. And by his death and resurrection, he has brought forth much fruit. Just look around. Look at how the world has changed. All across this globe. Through all these centuries, as multitudes upon multitudes of people have come to terms with who Jesus is and what he has done, and then have believed in him. Unless a seed fall into the ground, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. This morning, we're not going to set out to prove to you the resurrection. There are many different ways that we could do that. There are many different proofs that we could look at, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to study the narrative today. We're going to consider instead what we've been doing as we've gone through the book of John, coming to John the Baptist's testimony concerning Jesus. And seeing what John says about Jesus and his relationship to all of us. Last week we we studied Jesus and John's unique relationship. And John said, he must increase and I must decrease. In these verses we now see Jesus' relationship with every person who has ever lived. And all of us find ourselves in these verses. I want you to notice what he says in John chapter 3, as we begin, in verse 31. Now, I want you to notice as we read here, there's going to be tons and tons of pronouns. Now, if you remember from your English days, when you see a pronoun, that's standing in a replacement for the noun, And so you got to kind of supply who he's talking about. So he's going to say, he, he, he. And there's different people that are in this paragraph that we have to sort out who the he is referring to. There's sometimes the he is referring to Jesus. Sometimes the he is referring to John the Baptist. Sometimes the he is referring to the one who believes in him. He who believes in him. 
And so there's all these pronouns, and as we read through it, we want to sort through it thinking about what he's saying and who he is saying it about. So that we understand how we can have a relationship with God and what the terms of that relationship are. Notice what he says. He. Now this is Jesus. John is saying of Jesus, he, the one who comes from above, from heaven, he is above all. He is above everything. He is above all people. He is above all created things. He stands as sovereign Lord above it all. He who comes from above is above all. Now, who is the one who is of the earth? He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes, this is Jesus, comes from heaven, is above all. He, Jesus, bears witness to what he, Jesus, has seen and heard. In other words, what he's saying there is when Jesus was above in the heavens with his Father, with the Spirit, Trinity existing in glory, there were things that he saw and things that he heard. And he is relaying them to us. So it tells us here, he, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet John is saying, yet it seems like no one No one receives his testimony. No one's believing in this message. What he's saying. Sometimes we look around us and we feel the same way. I look out on a Sunday morning, I see many believers. But when I watch the news and I look at the world, I'm tempted to think what? No one receives. No one's receiving this testimony. The world at large has rejected it. We studied that earlier. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So few come. No one receives his testimony. Whoever, though, whoever does receive this testimony receives an authentication of that message, a verification of it, a sealing from God that God is true. That God is true. That God is who he said he is. That his word is real. That this record we read is flawless. That it gives to us truth. The one who receives this testimony receives an authentication that God is true. What is that authentication that he receives? For he whom God has sent is uttering the very words of God And the authentication is the spirit that he is giving. And he is giving that spirit without measure. In other words, he's saying God is not being chintzy with giving out the spirit. No, it's more like my cup runs over. No, it's more like he opens the the windows of heaven and he pours out a blessing I cannot receive. He's saying when God gives his spirit, he gives it without measure. He's not just 
doling it out in short increments to us. No, he is actually blessing us with a measureless spirit. You know you're in Wyoming when it's getting hot in the building and you've got to open windows. <laughs> Man, it's been cold and we're opening windows. It is warm in here. I'm starting to bead sweats up on me. I was out in the sun yesterday. I don't know about you. It felt really good, but I was like peeling layers really quick. Shows how cold it is when you think it's hot. I was talking to my grandson the other day, and it was like 35 degrees, and he was like, Dad, or Grandpa, it's hot. <laughs> I know he was born in Wyoming. So then he goes on. Okay, let's go back. Now notice verse 35. This is now where we get to the simple message. The Father loves the Son. Just stop and look at that phrase. God the Father loves His Son. We already have studied in John 3.16, God loves what? The world. The foundation of God's love for us is His love for His Son. And I really want to think about this this morning for a few minutes as we think about the gospel and how it is founded on this great love that precedes his love for us. God the Father loves his son. Because he loves his son, what has he done? He has given all things into his hand. Now notice verse 36. Here's the simple truth. Let's hang our hat on it this morning. Whoever believes in this Son has, right, has right now in my possession, not something I'm looking for down the road. No, this is something that I have has eternal life. Whoever, here's the other whoever, this is why we find every one of us in this room, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But then we've got to think about something that's really hard. Not only does God love the world, we saw that, but what is resting over the head of every person who is in the world? His wrath. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God hovers over him like an impending storm, like a brewing thunderhead that you can hear it coming in the summer over the mountains and you see the blackness and you hear the rumble and you see the flash of light 
It is coming. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will never see life, but is under God's wrath. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, I pray that we can just set this contrast clearly before us. Lord, so those of us who know you can rejoice in the truth that we have been delivered from the wrath that is to come. And then that, Lord, if someone is here today that has never come to terms with what the gospel is all about, I pray that, Lord, this morning you would give your spirit without measure and that someone would be born of the spirit today. Only you can do that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing this song, How Deep the Father's Love. You know it? How deep the Father's love for us, right? How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. What a truth. But let's shift it and think about it in a different reference point. How deep the Father's love for His Son. If you're a father, you get it. Before you're a father, you really don't. Do you remember when your kids were born? Now, mothers, you get it too, okay? We're putting this in the mask. Mothers, you get it in a different way than us dads do, right? We get it as parents. This little one kicking in your womb, ladies, you feel it. You know it's there. And all of a sudden, that individual makes its entry into the world. And you remember the rush when you bond immediately. And as you go through life, your children are to you your deepest love. Yes, as husband and wife, there is a uniqueness to our relationship that is so inseparable. We become one. It is a lasting bond that is deep beyond measure. But when you hold a life that came from the two of you, and you look at it, how deep? Consider the depth of the father's love for his son. How vast beyond all measure it is. How eternal it is. How inseparable they always were. I sometimes have heard the heresy repeated 
that God was lonely in heaven, and so he made man so he'd have somebody to fellowship with. So he walked with man in the cool of the garden of the day. No, God was not lonely. God had himself, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for all eternity in tremendous fellowship, unbroken union, and deepening love. How vast beyond all measure. And then it comes to, them, to the, the mystery of it all. That when the created thing, humanity, rebelled against him, rejected his word, and entered into sin and death, he, the father, would give his only son. To redeem us. Father's love. The Father loves the Son. This is one of the great themes of the book of John. One of the great themes, when you read the book of the John, the book of the John, yeah, whatever, sorry. When you read the book of John, there are many themes that we've been talking about. But you know, the biggest theme that runs through it all is the Father loves the Son. That is the overarching theme. In 21 chapters, 103 times. Just think about that. 21 chapters in the book of John, and in those chapters, 103 times, Jesus either speaks to his Father or refers in conversation to his relationship to his Father. Everything in the Gospel of John Life, death, truth, belief, miracles, all of it is set in the context of this relationship, the father-son relationship of the triune God. Now we see the Trinity in this because we also see the Spirit is given without measure. The Father loves the Son. I had a conversation probably two weeks ago. Dave Collins and I were talking. We were talking about our relationships with a dad and how both of us were so blessed to be raised in a home with a dad that we looked up to. Tremendous blessing. You know, the biggest crisis we got going in America, you know what it is? It ain't the economy. It ain't the banks. It ain't even the transgender thing. The biggest mess we got going on in America is the crisis we have of fatherhood. And almost every one of the dysfunctions in American culture is a direct result of fatherhood gone crazy, amok. Like I said, I am so blessed I, to have had a dad and have a dad. He's in glory. But to have a dad who loved the Lord and loved us. And he let it be known. Both things. Nobody doubted that my dad loved Jesus. 
And nobody doubted that my dad loved his kids. That's the man he was. What a blessing. Many people in America today, probably even many men in this place, did not have that blessing. And sometimes it's hard to think, okay, how do I then build that kind of relationship for my kids? I want to be a dad that, that, that my kids know the father loves the son. How do I show that to my son? We see that in the book of John. You know, I, I thought of this this week, and it's not really related to everything in this message, but I still want to hit it real quickly. What makes, what builds a good father-son relationship? What builds a good father-son relationship? I came up with two things. They're not really, you know, profound. This is just dummy, dummy Tim. This is what it meant to me to look to a dad and say, this, these were some things that my dad, that I knew about my dad from when I'm a little kid. Right? Because I'll tell you, if you're raising kids, what you're doing with your kids are down here below your knee is really as important, if not more important, than what you're doing when they're up here at your shoulder. Because what you're doing up here at the shoulder is really... In, that what's important there is what went down here, when they're down here. Now, if you're where they're up here, then you can still build... But if you got them and they're down here at this point, just starting out, you got to go at it, man. I mean, tag, you're it. You better make the effort. What builds a good father-son relationship? I came up with two things. My daddy makes me feel safe. He makes me feel safe. When you're a little kid, when you're a little boy, your little girl, my daddy makes me safe. He is my protector. You see this all through Scripture. Jesus was safe in his father's care. My daddy makes me feel safe. Here's another one that I think is so true. My dad can do anything, right? Now, I know he couldn't. I know that now. But when I was a little guy, I thought he could do anything, right? He can fix anything. He is my provider. I'm not saying you've got to be like the, the, you know, the guy with the, you know, do it everything, do it all. I'm not saying that at all. But I would say this. You want to build into your kids' life uh, the idea where they look to you as their protector and their provider. They know their life came from you. And you are the cat's meow in their eyes. They find out later you're not the cat's meow. Right? However, a good father-son relationship is built on trust. And the son, Jesus Christ trusts his father. The father love 
the Son. We see this in the book of John. We see the Father begot the Son. He sent the Son. He taught the Son. He knows the Son. These are all things that are important in the relationship of Father and of a Son. We then see the Son was begotten of the Father. He glorifies the Father. He submits to the Father. These are the things that the Son does in return. And so in this love relationship, the Father's love causes him to send his Son, to teach his Son, to know his Son. And the Son in return glorifies and submits to the Father. It tells us in chapter 3, verse 35, that since the Father loves the Son, he has given all things into his hand. In chapter 5, verse 20, it tells us that since the Father loves the Son... He shows him everything that he is doing. Guys, I hope there's no part of your life. I hope there's no tab on your browser that you can't show your son what you're doing. The father was an open book with his son. He shows him everything that he is doing. The Father loves the Son. This relationship is really brought out in John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these things. He looks up to heaven. He says, the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son because your Son is going to glorify you. You gave him authority over all flesh so he can give eternal life to all that you have given him. This is eternal life. Okay, Jesus is defining eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed when I was above, as we saw in what we just read. Now, here's the rub. The fact that the Father loves the Son didn't mean that the Father did not ask the Son to do something very difficult. Love does not necessarily insulate, does it? No, the Father sent the Son. The Father loves the Son But he asks the Son to do something beyond our wildest imagination. Like Abraham putting Isaac on the altar. The Father who loves his Son, his only Son, puts his Son upon a cross. And so later in the book of John, in the garden, he is going to say what? Father, Father, if there is any other way, But not my will. Yours be done. And then he hangs upon the cross and he cries out. In that moment of anguish as our sin is placed upon him. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The father has always loved the son. The Father has always been there for the Son. The Father has taught the Son. The Father knows the Son. And the Father turns his back on the Son. 
because of our sin. The Father's love for His Son is the foundation and the source of His love for the world. Because He, God, is love, He loves even us. And because the Father loves the Son, if we are in the Son, then we are loved. Because the love that God has for His Son is the foundation and the source and the consummation. His holy love governs His character. And we can rest assured of His love. And then that brings us I said this was going to be a simple message, but how do you put this together? God loves the world. But his wrath remains. That over our head is a cloud. How does that fit? God loves the world. How do we connect those dots? God is a God of love, and yet God is a God of wrath. What does it mean? How do we reconcile that? God, my friend, is angry at sin. He's angry at my sin. When it tells me in John 3, 16, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. He's not just saying there, if you don't believe in him, you just die. And you just get buried, and that's the end of it. No, we find out here, if you perish, what does that mean? You go to a place where you, okay, you doesn't matter how pretty you are, doesn't matter how nice you are, doesn't matter how big a bank account you have, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done for other people. He's saying this, if you are not in the sun, then you find yourself in a place for eternity where his wrath, his anger, is meted out upon us. How does love and anger go together? Right? How does love and anger go together? Now, this is a terrible illustration, but I'll give it anyway. It's a terrible illustration because it falls way short. We're just starting to calve out on the ranch. And uh, I got this old cow. She's number 72. She was one of my first cows that I ever got when we went into the cattle business. She's 18. She's never missed a calf. Now, if you don't know anything about cows, that's like in cow years, she's like Sarah. Okay, I've gone to calling her Sarah. I mean, she's up there. Well, she's kind of pretty weak and whatever. It's been a long winter, so I brought her back to the house, put her right in front of the house in a pasture with a couple of dairy cows and Amy's three sheep. What could go wrong? I'll have her there where I can watch her. Well, the other night, we had a blizzard, right? 
So I went out in the morning, I'm looking around, and I looked out there, and it's like, I know I put that cow in there. Where in the world is she? Where is she? I looked around. I mean, it's just a small acre and a half pasture. Where could she be hiding? There's nowhere to hide. All there is is snow. Finally, I thought, oh, I know what it was. I looked up, and I saw Amy's three sheep looking at their little sheep hutch. Okay, it's like this tall and about this wide, and in front of it, there's a berm about that high of snow. This cow, Sarah, in the middle of the blizzard, decided she would go in there and stay warm. How she did it, I have no idea. She had to have gotten on her knees. I would love to have seen this happen. Had to have got on her knees and crawled in. Well, of course, she couldn't stay in there. There's no room. So I walk over and look in there, and sure enough, she's just looking at me. So she's trying to get up, and every time she gets up, of course, she's on the roof. I'm like, you idiot, right? You idiot. What are we going to do now? So I literally had to go get Tyler. We had to take, we had to dissemble, totally take this building apart, take the roof off, and then she just stands up and stretches and goes her merry way. Now, I was ready to put my wrath on her head. When I seen her in there, I was like, oh, I'm going to get the cattle prod and let you have it. We'll see your head go through the roof. But I didn't know because why? I loved her. And because I loved her, I was going to help her. And she had no way out of her mess unless I took the roof off. What we see in the scripture is God's son bears God's wrath so that I could experience God's love. God's wrath. Not my wrath. God's wrath. Notice the verse at the end. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's go into the next phrase. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So we see, in order to enter into life, we believe in the Son. But in order for God's wrath to continue to rest on me, what has, what, what's going on? I am not obeying the Son. Now, That really helps me understand what it means to believe. And if you've got a different translation of the Bible, there are many different translations that probably we have, you'll see that that word there is translated many different ways. Sometimes it's translated to believe. So he who does not believe the Son. The NIV says he who rejects the Son. And the word is a very complex word. When he says there he does not obey the Son, it's not like he just disobeys individual commands. Okay, because we all do that. We've all disobeyed. Right? No, it is a word that speaks of a willful, volitional rejection that creates a settled disposition of disobedience. Willful, rebellious rejection resulting 
in disobedience. So what we see really is the contrast is this. To believe, to believe in the Son is a settled disposition of the heart to submit to the will of the Father and God's Word. To believe the Son. Doesn't mean you never fail. No, doesn't mean that at all. No, it is a settled disposition of your heart to trust Him. The one on whom God's wrath remains is the one who has a settled disposition of rejection. I read an article. I'm going to close with a little bit of an illustration. I read an article yesterday on CNN called The Rise of the Nuns. We're not talking about the Catholic nuns. The Rise of the Nuns. In America today, it was just article talking about Easter and Christianity. In America today, the largest segment of our population growing demographically is a group of people in America that would say, when they are asked, what is your religious affiliation? They would answer, none. They wouldn't say, I'm an agnostic. They wouldn't say, I'm an atheist. They would just say, I'm nothing. None. I don't care about it. I've seen it all, I'm done with it. Whether we're talking Islam, we're talking about Buddhism, we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about anything, we're just nothing. We're just living life. It's none. (coughs) I find that really intriguing. And I'm in no way denigrating that because I imagine there's some people in this room today that have come here on an Easter, and you would ask, somebody asked you, what are you? would say, I'm nothing. And I'm not mocking you for that in any way. We started out our study in John chapter 3 talking about one of the most prominent men in Judaism at the time. His name was Nicodemus. I want to end our study in John 3 by talking about another remarkable man. One of the foremost men of his generation, and for that matter, any generation. This guy stands as one of the most iconic figures of the founding of America. His achievements as an innovator, an inventor, and an entrepreneur are remarkable, almost beyond belief. I'm going to read you a list of things that this guy did. It's going to take me a minute or two. He invented, in 1717, fins for swimming. How many of you like to go scuba diving? He invented, in 1741, the Franklin stove. In 1750, he invented seven, the, in 1750, invented the lightning rod because he saw a lot of churches burning down with their steeples and he came up with a lightning rod. He invented, invented the flexible catheter. He invented, I still haven't gotten these, bifocals. 
He invented a long arm extension that he could use so that he could stand on the floor and he could reach with his long arm extension with a hand on it and get a book from the top shelf in his library. He came up with a basic plan for the city of Philadelphia for its waste management. He was the one who discovered that electricity existed in storm clouds in the form of lightning. You remember his experiment that almost got him sent and blown to glory. He founded the first circulating library, the first volunteer fire department, the first liberal arts academy in America. Today it is called the University of Pennsylvania. He created the first public hospital and the first mutual insurance company. He came up with the original confederation of the 13 colonies in what he called the Albany Plan in 1754. He came up with something that I hate, daylight savings time. <laughs> Street lamps that would give off more light and would last through the night. He was the one who came to grips with the reality that prolonged exposure to lead would cause you to get ill. He diagnosed where the common cold came from. He came up with the first rate chart that would be used by postmasters. He used the words positive and negative for the first time to describe electricity. He devised the political cartoon in America he charted on one of his crossings of the Atlantic Ocean. He charted the Gulf Stream. He was an ambassador of the United States, and he brought back to the colonies Swiss, Swiss barley, scotch, kale, and Chinese rhubarb. And he was somewhat of an enigma when it comes to his faith. He was the originator in his almanac, poor Richard Almanac. In 1736, he came up with a phrase. Most people, if you're asked this phrase today in America, you go to New York and you ask people, who said this? They'll say it was in the Bible, but it isn't. It's actually a succinct phrase that corresponds exactly with the American false theology of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He came up with the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. He grew up in Puritan New England, sat under the ministry of a man named Cotton Mather. His father was a solid, born-again Christian. He was raised in a godly home by godly parents. And as a young man, he rejected it all. He was working in a print shop, his brother's actually, and he began to write letters to the editor in Boston under a false name. They're called the Silence Do Good Letters, in which he characterized and he mocked the Christianity of the Puritans. 
He ran away from Boston. He was indentured to his brother to work in the print shop as an apprentice for seven years. When he got to year five, he cut town and he left, never to return. Went to Philadelphia eventually. By the time we get to the Constitutional Convention, he is an old man. And he says these words. When everything seems to be going wrong, and they cannot come to terms with what to do, he says, sirs, I have lived a long time. The longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth. God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable an empire can rise without his aid? I have lived a long time. He would have been one of the original Americans who would have said, religious affiliation, none. But the longer he lived, and the more he looked at the world, and the more he looked at himself, the more he recognized and realized God governs. He returned from the convention and is in short order, confined to his home and to the sick bed. His daughter cares for him until he dies. He is dying as an old man. His daughter wanted to make the bed up. She gets him out of bed. She says, Dad, if you're going to die, you're at least going to die in a made bed. I'm going to make your dying easier. And he looks at her and he says, For a man that is dying, nothing is easy. And he died, like all of us will. And this is what it says on his tombstone. The body of Ben Franklin, printer. Like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by its author. As in Adam all die, So in Christ shall all be made alive. The Father loves the Son. He has given all things into his hand. The Father loves the world. His Son bore his wrath so that you and I could experience his love. And if we do, although this flesh becomes food for worms, 
it will rise again in a new and more perfect edition corrected and amended by its author. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that, God, you are true, though every man is a liar. Lord, every one of us in this room, in one way or another, has broken your holy law. We have set ourselves in enmity against you. We have done exactly what it describes in these verses, that we have disobeyed the Son. We have willfully rebelled. We have rejected. We're not neutral. Apart from you, we perish. But in you, we live. I pray, Father, that somebody here today that does not know you, that they would understand this simple truth that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. For those of us that know you, Father, may we love you deeper. Dismiss us with your love as we celebrate today the resurrection. In Jesus' name.